Welcome to today's podcast. Many general adult intensivists have at some stage faced the difficult reality of looking after a critically ill obstetric patient. It's safe to say this can be a harrowing time, as the expectations surrounding the care of two patients at once can at times be immense. To help me understand the issues surrounding the care of the critically ill pregnant patient, Dr Stephen Lipinski from Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada, joins me on today's podcast. I began by asking him what the most common reasons for obstetric admissions to ICU were. Now, the, the most common uh, cause for ICU admission is preeclampsia and related conditions, so preeclampsia, eclampsia with seizures, and HELP syndrome. And that usually accounts in most series for 40 to 50% of admissions. And then after that, obstetric hemorrhage and various forms of sepsis. How much do we know about the outcomes for women and their fetuses who do require admission to intensive care? Yeah, so the, the outcome is generally very good. Uh, there, there are a lot of case series, so there's very little in the way of randomized trials, but many case series from various parts of the world that have looked at this, and in fact a country person of yours, um, Wendy Pollock, I think also from Melbourne, uh, put together a very detailed systematic review of all of these case series. And the mortality does vary quite significantly. We reviewed our experience in the late 90s and our mortality was zero in a, in a five-year review. Uh, others have reported in the range of 10 to 20 percent. Generally, the mortality actually is lower than most other ICU patient groups because these are young patients without significant comorbidity. The fetal outcome is different. There's actually very little literature on uh, fetal outcome of mothers in the ICU. Uh, In fact, Wendy Pollock's review pointed that out, that very few of these reports documented that. And there was actually an editorial in this month's uh, Critical Care Medicine talking about the lack of data on fetal outcome for mothers in the ICU. Does it depend on the type of presentation that the, the mother has? Yes, it does. Uh, I mean, some women with more severe disease like ARDS obviously have a higher risk of dying or women with septic shock. But uh, even so, the the ARDS outcome in pregnant women seems to be better than that in the general population. So you're talking about a 25 to 35-year-old woman compared with the usual sort of 60 to 70-year-old patient uh, with ARDS who's not pregnant. Uh, septic shock obviously still carries significant risks, but most causes of septic shock can be easily treated. If it's obstetric sepsis, it's usually surgically amenable, and other types of sepsis do improve quite quickly in pregnancy. A couple of years ago with the H1N1 uh, influenza pandemic, we saw uh, quite poor outcomes for pregnant women. Was there something about their physiology or the pathology that specifically targeted pregnant women? Yeah, it it does look like it. It's been known for years. If you look back at data from the 1918 epidemic, um, flu epidemic, and the 1950s epidemics, there were higher incidences of bad disease in pregnant women and higher mortality in pregnant women. So that was expected for the H1N1 epidemic, and that certainly did happen. 
some of it is related to changes in maternal immunity. So uh, the mother has an abnormal cell-mediated immunity, probably so that she doesn't reject the, the foreign fetus. And this predisposes her to some viral infections like influenza, but also um, varicella, and also to some fungal infections. The H1N1 also had a predilection for the lungs, so it caused particularly bad ARDS. So I think all over the world we saw pregnant women with bad ARDS, and your Australians did a good job writing that up in detail. There's a truism, I guess, in obstetric critical care, isn't there, that what's good for the mother is good for the child. What are the general principles of management for an obstetric critically ill patient? I think that's a very good general principle that you've got to keep the mother alive and there's obviously a reluctance to do various things because of potential harm to the fetus but if it's going to make the mother better it's good for the fetus. Uh, a few years ago we ran a, a, a course in Toronto on obstetric critical care and I asked one of the pharmacologists, we've got a group in Toronto called Mother Risk who deal with drugs in pregnancy. They have an online resource, which is excellent. And I asked the head of Mother Risk to give the talk on pharmacology in pregnancy in the ICU. And he summed it up in one sentence. He said, give whatever drugs you need to give and don't worry about it. So there again, although we are worried about the drugs and there are obviously some that you want to avoid, uh, in general, if it's going to help the mother, you need to give the drugs. Are there differences in the way you'd approach an obstetric patient early on in their pregnancy compared with in late gestation? Yeah, so in the first trimester, you're obviously a little bit more worried about the drugs and uh, and radiation, so x-rays. And it has been shown that fetal outcome is worse for mothers in the ICU at early gestation. Uh, you also don't have the, the ability to deliver the fetus if things are starting to go badly, whereas a mother who's at sort of 30 weeks gestation onwards, uh, that's always an option. You know, if the fetus is going to be better off delivered than remaining in utero, then that, that's an, an option uh, to improve both mother and fetus. Stephen, I know you've written about uh, some of the changes that are required in ventilation strategy for pregnant patients. How does the fetus affect the management of the obstetric patient and when do you make the decision to get the baby out? Yeah, so there's actually very little data on how to um, ventilate pregnant women uh, in the long term rather than just uh, briefly for caesarean section. Uh, the effects of the pregnancy on the fetus are that it's going to reduce respiratory system compliance. So the chest wall becomes tight and you may need higher ventilatory pressures and higher PEEP to achieve what you would normally do. Um, the little bit of data there is is from the H1N1 epidemic where it was clearly shown that pregnant women can you know, go through all the non-conventional modes of ventilation, high-frequency oscillation, and including ECMO, uh, a nice case series from Australia. Uh, in terms of delivery, there's really some controversy as to whether delivering the fetus is going to improve the mother. There's one case report that kind of highlighted that delivery improved the mother's physiology and respiratory status quite dramatically. But there have been several case series where that certainly hasn't happened. And when you look at the H1N1 experience, it's not really clear, but there are several reports where mothers underwent urgent caesarean section because of intractable hypoxia, and both the fetus and the mother died. 
So I, I think a general principle would be that if the fetus is going to be better off outside of the uterus, then delivery is appropriate. So in other words, if the mother is so hypoxic that the fetus is going to be better off on a ventilator in the NICU, and that decision will be made by the neonatologist, then delivery is appropriate. But delivering the fetus uh, just to expect an improvement in the maternal respiratory status, I don't think is appropriate because it's not necessarily going to improve the mother. There is some evidence that um, uh, there's an improvement in oxygenation, isn't there, when a baby is uh, is taken out? Is that correct? Yeah, so oxygenation improves a, a small amount, and in these case series you can get the FiO2 down perhaps from a what may be considered a dangerous 70% down to a less dangerous 50 or 60%. But it's not a dramatic improvement. Things don't turn around dramatically. So if you're benefiting the fetus at the same time by removing the fetus from a hypoxic environment, then it's a good thing all around. But if the fetus is you know, 26 weeks and it's going to do badly, after delivery, then you've really got to weigh up the small benefit for the mother with you know, the damage that's being done to the fetus. One of the more confusing things for an adult intensivist like myself who doesn't deal with this commonly is an understanding of the, the maternal physiology. We know that there are obvious differences in the physiology when women are pregnant, but what are the targets that we should be aiming for as part of our supportive strategy? Yeah, so the, the, the respiratory physiology, the main change is the hyperventilation, which occurs um, progressively through pregnancy, probably mediated by progesterone. So uh, by around 30 weeks onwards, the pregnant mother is going to have a arterial CO2 concentration of about um, 30 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and oxygenation should be normal. So if you do see a pregnant woman with a PCO2 of 40 millimeters, you'll notice she's acidemic because the bicarb will have dropped uh, concomitantly with the CO2. So a CO2 in the range of 40 millimeters of mercury may well represent respiratory failure. The oxygenation should generally stay the same. Other things to keep in mind is that um, the pregnant woman usually has edematous and friable and hyperemic upper airway mucosa. So when you're intubating, you're going to need a smaller endotracheal tube. You also want to avoid putting tubes through the nose, so nasogastric tubes t tend to bleed a lot. Uh, the other main change to be aware of is the renal function where the creatinine normally would be significantly lower than in the non-pregnant patient. So anything above about 60 micromoles per litre would probably be abnormal. Would that change your indications for uh, renal replacement therapy in the pregnant woman? Uh, not necessarily because you're not really going to base it directly on the, the creatinine. So I think it would be your normal criteria. And I think in critical care nowadays, we still don't know what the appropriate time is to begin renal replacement therapy. So I'm sure it's not answered for the pregnant patient. Would you be aiming for lower levels of uh, carbon dioxide in, in your ventilation strategy? And how does that affect uh, things like permissive hypercapnia and so on? Yeah, that's a very good question. And again, very little data. There are a few case reports and small case series 
of pregnant women who've had CO2s in the mid-50s to high-50s who've done very well and the fetus has done very well. What is harmful for the fetus is alkalosis. So if the pregnant woman becomes alkalemic, uh, she's going to develop uterine arterial vasoconstriction, and that's going to be bad for the fetus by reducing uh, placental blood flow. So that's one of the reasons in labor you don't want the pregnant woman hyperventilating and you want them to control their breathing well. So it's a question if you have a patient on a ventilator, do you ventilate the CO2 down to 30? And I mean, if that's easy to achieve, I guess that's reasonable to do. What you don't want to do is blow the CO2 any lower and cause alkalosis. And from the small amount of data that's available, the pregnant woman probably tolerates a mild hypercapnia reasonably well. The fetus certainly tolerates mild maternal acidemia much better than maternal alkalemia. The other question, of course, is you referred to um, perfusion of the, the placenta, is about um, blood pressure targets and how you would manage that in the pregnant woman. Yeah, so uh, the blood pressure becomes really relevant in preeclampsia and the hypertensive pregnant woman. And I think the take-home message there is that the treatment of the hypertension should be aimed purely at pre preventing maternal hypertensive damage. So you want to prevent the mother having an intracranial bleed or having an aortic dissection or an acute myocardial infarction. Uh, lowering the blood pressure is only harmful for the fetus. So lowering the blood pressure is going to reduce placental perfusion and really does nothing for the fetus. So your blood pressure control should be purely aimed at uh, reducing really excessive blood pressure in the mother, but it really does nothing beneficial for the fetus. Then in the hypotensive patient, the issue is at what point do you use inotropes and are inotropes or vasopressors harmful? And the take-home message is that they're probably all potentially harmful, but again, uh, a live mother is preferable. Um, Normally in the ICU when we're using uh, presser agents, uh, the kind of endpoints we can use, the simple endpoints, would be urine output. So we titrate a blood pressure to an adequate urine output or we can look at level of consciousness. In pregnancy, we have a third um, inborn monitor and that's the fetus. So if you have your obstetricians do electronic fetal heart rate monitoring, if the fetal heart rate is normal with no... Um, abnormalities, bradycardias or decelerations, then you can be assured that there's adequate blood flow and adequate cardiac output. And you can really titrate your inotropes to some degree against the fetal heart rate monitoring. You mentioned earlier the issues with um, drug selection and their effects on the fetus. What, do, what is your common practice for things such as sedation, analgesia, antimicrobials and blood pressure regulation, as you just mentioned? Yeah, so again, um, it tends to be the older drugs. The newer drugs have less data. The older the drugs, the more data there is. In terms of sedation and analgesia, really not much good data. There is some theoretical concern about benzodiazepines uh, in animal studies, but really not confirmed in human studies. There's a small amount of data looking at uh, transfer of benzodiazepines across, across the placenta, and midazolam seems to transfer less so than, than the others, less so than lorazepam or diazepam. So that would be the drug we would use for sedation. And for analgesia, the opiates all seem to be equally safe. So you can choose your fentanyl or morphine or hydromorphone.
I think the important thing in the sedated pregnant patient is to be aware that if she suddenly delivers spontaneously, that the fetus is likely going to be very sedated and you're going to need a neonatal resuscitation team to intubate and take over ventilation for that fetus. Similarly, neuromuscular block, the majority of them don't transfer significantly to the fetus. It's in the range of 5 to 20% is transferred to the fetus, uh, depending on which drug you're using, but you can potentially have a paralyzed fetus. Antibiotics, I think there's fairly good literature. Antibiotics are commonly used in pregnancy outside of the ICU. So the majority of them are pretty safe. The ones to avoid tetracycline is potentially bad for the um, bones and for the teeth. And there is some controversy about the quinolones. Um, ciprofloxacin is classically considered a dangerous drug in pregnancy, but the literature really doesn't support it. And our Toronto mother risk group would advocate ciprofloxacin if necessary. So for the pregnant woman with a resistant pseudomonas or someone who needs um, outpatient oral treatment, uh, cystic fibrosis patients, for example, uh, they would recommend ciprofloxacin. You referred a little while ago to the airway issues. Why is airway, or why is the um, the pregnant woman's airway different? Uh, when does that sort of start to begin uh, during pregnancy, and, and what are the approaches to dealing with this? Yeah, so the main risks with the airway, one, as I mentioned, is the upper airway hyperemia and edema, edema, making it somewhat more difficult. But the pregnant woman, as pregnancy progresses, has an increasing oxygen consumption and a reduced functional residual capacity. So in the non-pregnant patient, you can pre-oxygenate them and you've got several minutes to fiddle around with the airway or have your medical student try. In the pregnant woman, pre-oxygenation does not allow that much oxygen in the functional residual capacity, and she's going to use up that oxygen much more rapidly. So the pregnant patient is going to desaturate much more rapidly when she becomes apneic. So that's not one to play around with, and the most expert person around should do the intubation. I'd just like to return to preeclampsia for a moment and the HELP syndrome. You talked a little bit about the blood pressure management. What's the current thinking about the best agents uh, in terms of controlling blood pressure management? Um, so that's also, you know, the, the sort of outpatient approach. Generally, they use uh, some of the older agents, um, alpha-methyl dopers commonly used, hydralazine. And in the ICU, the commonly used drug would be uh, labetalol, even though when you look at the FDA classification, it's classified as a C or a D, um, implying that it carries some risks. But that would usually be the standard along with um, calcium antagonists. What you don't want to do is give, uh, for example, sublingual um, calcium antagonist sublingual nifedipine was uh, in vogue some time ago, but that can really crash the blood pressure and do a lot of harm to the fetus. So you want gentle blood pressure control, usually calcium antagonists, uh, labetalol, and perhaps hydralazine. The other obviously commonly used drug is magnesium for its um, uh, the reduction of the risk of, of eclamptic fits. How is this drug used and what are some of the pitfalls that people uh, stumble across? 
Yeah, so the magnesium infusion is used both prophylactically and therapeutically. So a pregnant patient with preeclampsia would usually get at least a 24-hour infusion of magnesium. Usually begins with a, a bolus of um, 2 to 4 grams, uh, followed by an infusion of anything from 1 to 3 grams per hour. And that's very effective in terms of reducing seizures. But the risk of accumulating uh, magnesium does happen, particularly in the woman with renal failure. So the pregnant patient with preeclampsia and renal dysfunction is at significant risk of accumulating magnesium. Once the levels get above about 3.5 millimoles per liter, 4 millimoles per liter, you can have a number of bad effects, uh, particularly muscle weakness causing respiratory failure and cardiac effects, uh, heart blocks. So that's usually monitored by measuring levels, but also checking the reflexes um, and beware in the patient with renal dysfunction. Another area of controversy in this sort of area is the issue of whether to fill aggressively or not fill. And there seems to be divided opinions on this. What's your opinion on it? Uh, in the preeclamptic patient, they generally are somewhat volume depleted. Um, by the time they actually come to us in the ICU, the obstetricians have had a few hours to fiddle around, so it's really hard to know where you are. What you don't want to do is overdo the volume because that's likely to precipitate pulmonary edema or even more seriously, cerebral edema. But you also don't want to diurese them because that's going to drop the uterine perfusion. So I think the message is no big changes, just take it carefully watch the urine output, and watch the fetus. Um, once the fetus is delivered, it's less of a concern about diureasing them because you're not worried anymore about uh, the placental perfusion, but you don't want to overfill them and precipitate pulmonary or cerebral edema. Two areas of controversy that keep coming up in the HELP syndrome is that of plasma exchange and the role of steroids. Is the literature any clearer at the moment? Um, not really. There are a few uh, randomized controlled trials that have shown that um, the commonly used regimen, for reasons that aren't clear, is dexamethasone, 10 milligrams uh, BID. And that kind of regimen has been shown to cause platelets to recover more rapidly. Although a more recent um, RCT uh, suggested that there was no benefit. I believe there has been a Cochrane review on the topic that was uh, inconclusive, and I think there still are some studies ongoing about the use of steroids. So I don't think that's uh, the answer is finalized. In terms of plasmapheresis, where that's usually used is when the platelet count does not recover uh, after delivery. So if you've waited two, three days, and the usual time frame would be about 72 hours, if you've had no recovery of the platelet count after delivery, then the likelihood is that this is not uh, HELP syndrome, and it may well be TTP. And if it's TTP, that's going to respond to plasmapheresis. So I think the plasmapheresis is not really a treatment of HELP syndrome, but it's a treatment of TTP that was initially diagnosed as HELP syndrome. One of the more dramatic obstetric emergencies that I've seen is that of uh, amniotic fluid embolism. What's your approach to the management of these patients? Um, again, as an intensivist, my approach is, well, if they make it to the ICU, things are going very well. You know, a lot of these patients do uh, die quite suddenly, sudden cardiac arrest prior to coming to the ICU. I think the biggest concern about amniotic fluid embolism is that the diagnosis is 
difficult or impossible. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. There are several papers uh, trying to document diagnostic tests, but none of them is really valid. So it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And it's a matter of early and aggressive resuscitation by the normal method. So the patient's going to need uh, vasopressin, inotropic support. They usually have an acute pulmonary hypertension and myocardial dysfunction. They're going to develop ARDS. And the ones that survive and get into the ICU will often go on to develop a DIC with significant bleeding. So just general ICU support. Um, but with a high likelihood of either neurological damage or uh, mortality. Stephen, the obvious other very dramatic presentation can be that of, um, of obstetric hemorrhage. Is there anything different about the management of obstetric hemorrhage compared with a hemorrhaging uh, non-pregnant patient? Yeah, so there are a number of specific interventions. So the basic principles would obviously be the same to have adequate venous access and you know, get the transfusions going early. Uh, fortunately, the obstetricians have a number of tricks up their sleeve that they can do. And the one that has really uh, increased in use over the past decade is the use of intrauterine balloon tamponade. So they put a balloon in, the common one is the Bacri balloon, blow it up and that can tamponade the uterus and really control the bleeding. Uh, the next step would be uh, interventional radiology to perform embolism. So the combination of those procedures, the acute control with the balloon and then radiological embolism has really improved things dramatically. Uh, if those steps don't work, then there's sometimes a role for surgical intervention, either tying off uterine arteries or hysterectomy. Uh, in my situation in our ICU, we generally only get involved with these patients after the acute phase is over. Our obstetricians and obstetric anesthetists deal with the whole process themselves, and I think they don't like the intensivists getting involved until they've controlled the issue. Finally, of course, is the end point and the most horrifying outcome, which is that of the arrest of the pregnant patient. I was wondering whether you could comment on on resuscitation of the pregnant patient and also the role of perimortem caesarean section? Yeah, so the, um, the cardiac arrest guidelines that come out every four years or so, the most recent ones um, have revised the uh, cardiac arrest management in the pregnant patient quite significantly. I think the big issues are the positioning of the patient. So you really want to get the uterus off the inferior vena cava because that can markedly inhibit venous return and affect the hemodynamics. Uh, the previous uh, editions of the cardiac arrest guidelines were to put the woman in a left lateral tilt position, but it has been shown that that really provides inadequate CPR. So it's probably preferable to have the woman on her back with someone manually pulling the uterus over to the left to get it off the IVC, and that provides better um, CPR. Uh, the other issues are to make sure your IV line is above the diaphragm, so you want an arm or neck line rather than a femoral line because venous return will impede your drug administration. You'd give the normal drugs that you'd give and you'd shock in the normal way, just making sure that you don't have any uh, leads connected to the fetus or to the abdomen when you're providing the shock. And then the guidelines say that the perimortem section should be considered if you don't have a return of spontaneous circulation in four minutes um, with the idea of having the baby delivered in five minutes. 
And although that's uncommon, that's something that can be done and can have a dramatic effect both for the fetus but also for the mother. There are several case reports of mothers dramatically improving after the perimortem section. We recently had a woman uh, come into our emergency room um, arrested just outside. She was walking in, coming in uh, for an, a planned uh, induction of labor. And she arrested, they ran a code in the emergency room. There happened to be an obstetrician walking through. Uh, they gave the obstetrician a scalpel and said, deliver. And in five minutes, the baby was out. And in fact, the mother and the fetus both did well. The mother spent several weeks in the ICU with some neurological injury. But being a young woman, she recovered fully and went home with her baby. What an extraordinary outcome and just a demonstration of what can be achieved if, uh, if everything runs as smoothly as it can. Yeah, we were very pleased with that one. I'm, I'm sure you were. Stephen Lipinski, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thanks very much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes Store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique. Making critical care education easier.